Welcome to Eastlake Online. My name is Brent, and uh, we are finishing up a three-part series today called Either Or. Uh, it's been a series on decisions and making good decisions, and you've already made one by logging in today and watching from home or wherever it is that you're watching or listening to this, so good job on you. Um, this series, we've been focusing uh, th- uh, three talks on one specific parable. This parable only shows up in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 21, and like everything in life, there's a back story to the parable. We spent a little bit of time leading up in in part one or part two of this. And if you missed that, you can always go to eastlaketricities.com slash talks or download the app and and watch those to catch up with this. But the backstory in this case includes the art of asking around a question. And when I say that, you've experienced something like this before. You really want to ask somebody something, but you can't just come out right and say that thing for lots of different reasons. Uh, they'll get offended, or, or um, it's not politically appropriate, or, or it's, not, it's not something, and so you ask around the question. You ask a different question, and everybody knows the question you really wanted to ask, but you can't ask that one, so you ask this one instead. Um, and what they wanted to ask was, are you really the Messiah? You see, uh, the entire New Testament is this big giant waiting period of this, this uh, Israelite people waiting for a Messiah. They're in, living in occupied uh, Roman territory, and they've been uh, holding on to this promise of someday someone coming and rescuing a savior of sorts, a, a something, a, a, a messenger from God who's able to do all of these different things. And over time, from the 400 years from the end of the Old Testament to the beginning of the New Testament, there had occurred several different quote-unquote messiahs people who would come along and say, I've got this, I'm a messenger from God. I'm, I'm special. I'm the one that's going to save the people. Uh, and over and over and again, they would get struck down, struck down, and, and it wouldn't work out. And people would kind of say, align themselves with them, form allegiances with them, say, I'm a follower of so-and-so. And then things would peter out and they'd be left alone once again in this way. And so they become, as you would, uh, hesitant towards kind of identifying or partnering with any of these things. And so they want to ask this question, uh, but they're a little bit of afraid of the the answer in this. So the answer, the question that they ask instead is by whose authority are you doing this? This is the question that starts up in Matthew uh, 21, this, this intro into this parable. Whose authority are you doing this? Because they know a couple of things. If and when the Messiah shows up, he would be the one in charge and they would be uh, subject to anything that he does. And right now they're in control because they're the priests and they're the religious leaders and they're the Pharisees and they're the pastors of the church at the time. And if he shows up and he's actually the Messiah, then they're kind of out of a job. Yes, they have a Messiah now, but all of this, all of this control that they've had is now suddenly evaporated and it's gone. Uh, it's, it's Remember in the, the animated film, the, the one you grew up with, that we grew up with, Robin Hood, uh, where, uh, the, where you've got this uh, Prince John on the throne, but his brother, King Richard, is the actual king, but he's holding it. And as soon as Richard shows up, he'd be out of a job. So he's like, I'm here and I'm there. And I know I'm bringing in Robin Hood. And I'm dating myself in this way. But here, here's the thing is, we're, we're waiting, we're, we're worried about what we'd actually find. We want to act like we're on the journey for something, or we want to act like we're interested in the Messiah. They had to act as if they were interested in the Messiah, but they know that if they found him, and if he actually showed up, things would have to change for them. And, and this, this represents a lot of the way that people go through life. Um, we go through life with this self-awareness that it's, um, it's appropriate for us to be open to the idea of God. Um, and so we're constantly searching for God. Maybe you're not even like particularly religious and somehow you logged into church today because, you know, church online is way easier than actually waking up and, and showing up the church. Um, and I totally get that. Um, 
And uh, so we go through life a lot of times doing our kind of our own thing, but we're, we want the, we like the social image of being somebody who's open-minded enough to kind of wonder if God exists out there or to think that something exists, something, this all just didn't happen by chance, but I don't know if I'll ever find what I'm looking for. Um, uh, and the fear sometimes is if I actually do find out what I'm looking for, if I do find it, then there's going to be something that's going to be required of me, or I'm going to lose some control of some things. So we like the pursuit of it. We just don't like actually sometimes finding it or acquiring it, right? Uh, we like the pursuit of, of, of dating. Um, and then as somebody go, as somebody, as soon as somebody introduces the language of marriage and long-term commitment, then we're like, Ooh, <laughs> I really like dating. That's what I really liked. Uh, and so that's the hard part uh, that's going on with this. This is the difficulty that these Pharisees and these religious leaders uh, find themselves in. And so they begin to ask questions around the question as you do. So Jesus then responds with the question for them. They don't want to play the game. So he goes in to tell this story or this parable. And parables are always these fictional tales that tell a story, um, but also have, and the, more importantly, they have a point to them. There's a moral to them. There's a, there's a takeaway. There's a, you should do this in, in, as a result of this. And, and they're always kind of made up fictional stories. They could be kind of represented in our way as once upon a time, something, something happened, right? And, but it's not stories for entertainment value. It's stories for some sort of a purpose that's going on. So in Matthew 21, Jesus tells one of these stories. Once upon a time, there was this father who had two sons. He owned a vineyard or a, a farm of some sort. And he goes to his first son and he says, hey, I want you to go out and work in the field. The first son says, I'm not going to do it, dad. I'm not interested today. Uh, and then later he changes his mind and he goes out and works. And we don't know the motivation for why he did it, but he did it. The second son he goes to and he says, dad, or, son, I want you to go out and work in the field today. And the second son says, sure, dad, sure thing. I love you. Whatever. I'll do whatever you ask me to do. And then for whatever reason, he changes his mind and he decides not to go out and work. And then he poses this question to these Pharisees and the, these religious leaders who are supposed to then, they, they know he's telling a story. They know there's a point to the story. And anytime Jesus is telling a story like this, it's always this game of trying to identify who am I in the story, Right. Who are you in the story? And, and, and immediately I think they know who they are in the story. Verse 31 says this, which of the two did the will of the father? And they said, well, the first one did, right? The first one who said no, but then changed his mind. He actually did the will of his father, even though, even though he didn't do it uh, at first, even though it's not to be admired to say no, and then to turn around and say, yes, it feels a little bit wishy-washy. But and when it comes down to the bottom line, brass tacks about who actually did the will of the father, we have to say the first one. Jesus then said to them, truly, I say to you, all right, if you haven't figured out the connection between the story and who you identify with yourself in the story, the tax collector and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. And he's like pointing a finger at them, right? So, and, and there's a couple of things at play here. Um, he's going to use this phrase, the tax collectors and the prostitutes uh, in, in, a, in a unique way, because previously in other stories, he's talked about tax collectors and a lot of times Pharisees, uh, or sorry, uh, tax collectors and sinners or tax collectors and Gentiles. And in this moment, he goes even deeper and further into this area of prostitution and prostitutes. And, and, and he's trying to go, um, the people that you would despise the most, right? And the reason they would despise the most is not necessarily necessarily like a moral thing, but, but for a lot of them, um, in this scenario, um, these tax collectors and the prostitutes were people who were collaborators with this empire, Rome kind of, Rome is trying to in, bring in their culture, their way of doing things. And tax collectors and prostitutes were some of the first people to take advantage of somebody else trying to dilute the unique religious nature of the Israelite people. 
right? So, so you're coming in, you're occupying us, and you're requiring us to pay taxes. And you've got these tax collectors who have taken it upon themselves to know exactly, to betray their own uh, people, uh, to, to say, hey, if you're going to do taxes, I know these people. They didn't have an IRS system. I know how much Charlie makes. I know he's got some stocked away. I'm the one that can get the actual accurate taxes out of him, selling themselves out for the sake of the, you know, the empire and, and selling out their people group. And prostitutes bringing in this sexual ethic of Rome into this place and allowing it to have, uh, ha- have roots in here. So this is, this is political. This is, uh, this is more than just, you know, well, they don't have the same ethical standards that we do. This is, there's more to this. And then he's trying to say this to them. These people who you despise more than any, any other people groups, they go into the kingdom of God. Now that's an interesting phrase because a lot of times we equate that immediately with heaven or a place that you go when you die. But as we've talked about, if you've been a part of Eastlake for any length of time, when Jesus uses this phrase, many times he's talking about this uh, mental awareness of living in the way or living in the will of the Father. So living in such a way um, that what is done uh, on earth is exactly what has taken place in the kingdom. When we say the Lord's Prayer, part of that phrase is on earth as it is in heaven. It's this kingdom sort of mindset. If that's taking place there, if we can expect that sort of life up there, then what would it look like to live that out in the here and now? An ethic that responds to the will of the Father. So um, they, they enter into this mindset of living in the way of the Father or living the right way, as we'll see in just a second. They do this before you. These people who you've categorized as far further away from the kingdom of heaven mindset than anybody else are getting there faster and going further than you are. For, and this is now here, here comes his example as to why this takes place. For John came to you. John, if you remember correctly, this is John the Baptist. Um, this is his cousin. This is the guy who shows up in like animal hair and eating locusts and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. He came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your minds and believe him. Now, there's a lot of things going on in this uh, idea. Um, this idea of this in the, in the way of righteousness only shows up in this sort of text. And, and basically, it's this Semitic expression talking about this right way of living. This, this um, he showed up and he talked about a right way of living. His message was offensive. Um, when he shows up on the scene, he's, uh, he's drawing crowds, but he's doing it in like uh, very extreme measures. Uh, it'd be like the guy on, on the street corner a little bit holding the signs or the guy that just looks like he doesn't fit in socially with anybody else. He probably doesn't have a lot of friends. Um, and yet he's out here telling us and judging us for our behavior of life. And we question whether his validity is there at all. But he comes and he says he has, his, he has a two-pronged message. One is repent. Um, you're living in a broken way. And the second part of his message, which is by far the, far, you know, the more primary message of it, um, is that somebody is, uh, somebody's coming, that I'm paving the way for somebody else or, uh, or judgment is about to take place. And he's taking the role, a lot of times, uh, a lot of people uh, think through this in terms of John is like a leftover prophet from the Old Testament. If you've ever spent some time, got lost in the Old Testament prophets or attended a series where we talked about prophets in the Old Testament, it wasn't prophesying about, like, I, I can tell you what lottery numbers are going to come next or who's going to win the World Series or anything, anything like that. Prophecy for them was um, you have a message to go to a people group and say, you're, you've got to shape up. Something's got to change. Repent. Turn around. Stop doing what you're doing because somebody is coming, right? 
right? The Assyrians from the north or the Babylonians from the east, or there's going to be some invaders that are on their way. Judgment is about to take place. Stop what you're doing or else this is going to happen or something or somebody is coming. Now these, these prophets kind of had this quiet period. In the Old Testament, they would kind of operate and do their thing. And then for 400 years in between the Old Testament and New Testament, nothing happens. And then John shows up on the scene and it's kind of like he's doing, he's bringing back this, oh yeah, we kind of remember those or we read about those, but it's multi-generations from actually seeing a prophet. Now you've got this guy showing up and all this kind of weird stuff, acting in erratic behavior, talking in this language going, we've heard about you. We've heard about things like this, but we've never actually seen this. This is very interesting. Perhaps that was his crowd. Perhaps that was the draw for him. Again, trying to call them to some sort of repentance and then letting them know that somebody is coming, that somebody is coming and paving the way uh, in this. And you did not believe him, right? Which... Of course they didn't. It's been 400 years. This is kind of a relic from the past. That message is kind of a, an odd thing. When people hold signs on G-Way and say the end is near, we're like, I don't, I don't know, man. I get a job, you know, whatever. And then you just get in your car and you just keep driving, whatever. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they believed him. What did they believe about him? Probably both of those things. When he goes to them and says, you're not living the right way. Tax collectors and prostitutes go, yeah, we know. <laughs> like, you don't have to sell us on that. We probably live with this guilt every day. We've been kind of excluded and shunned from even our family groups and our friend groups have probably shrunk since we decided, but we got to survive. This is our means for survival. And so therefore, you know, sometimes you do desperate things, desperate times called for desperate measures or whatever. Um, and, and, and yet you come to us and you say, you're not living correctly. There are, there are those of us, all of us at some point in life, when somebody has come to us and be like, hey, um, that thing that you just did, like, that's not right. And you'd be like, yeah, I know, thanks. Uh, yeah, I know. And then they believed also something about what he said about who is coming. Jesus notices that in his audience are people who are not usually the religious sort of people. We've said this from the beginning when we started this church a, a long time ago is we want to be a church for unchurched people because when Jesus, when we read about Jesus doing his thing in his public ministry and teaching in this way, people who are nothing like him liked him, right? And people who are nothing like Jesus typically don't like the church. So we want to be a church for people who don't typically like church because we feel like that's the similar audience that Jesus actually had when he did his thing. And perhaps the reason that they liked Jesus because they was because something that John said, because then perhaps they believed John when he said, someone who's coming whose shoes I'm unfit to tie. Like there's, there's somebody that's on his way that is worth listening to. You should perhaps listen to him in this way. And then even go back to this phrase, if you would, uh, on the screen, this verse. And even when you saw it, and even when you saw it, what is it? Even when you saw them change their minds about their own personal behavior or what their perception of Jesus is, even when you saw them, even when you saw a crowd of people who are not typically religious, all of a sudden become semi-religious, quasi-religious, or at least have some sort of temperament about their, their, their moral and ethical behavior, all of a sudden they wake up to this awareness that I need to do life better. Or what, what's, what is this it? Even when you saw people who changed their mind to a new way of living or who changed their mind about listening to the will of the Father, or people who changed their opinion about Jesus in this moment. Even when you saw it, 
you did not afterwards change your minds and believe him. Now the parable in the story that he just told of the two sons doesn't say whether the second son saw the changed mind of the first son and that moved him to kind of uh, change his behavior in that way. Um, But you see people and you saw people in this scenario who wanted nothing to do with religion and all of a sudden they made divine decisions with divine accountability. Like I'm living now in such a way that I... I want to change my behavior because I feel like I'm accountable to something bigger than me. And it did nothing for you. This is Jesus' biggest concern with them. You saw this taking place in the lives of people. And you either thought, well, good for them. Or you thought they needed it, but I don't, which is like a prideful ego thing. Um, Surely you didn't think like that they... It's easy for them, but it's hard for you. I mean, what's, what's taking place in, in their minds? Maybe perhaps in their minds, they're saying, my brother, the one who said outright no the first time has come around. Perhaps I, who have a history of priding myself on my relationship with my father, after all, I did say yes to him when he asked me to go out and work in the vineyard. After all, I did say yes and became this religious Pharisee. I became this priest. I dedicated my life to memorizing the Torah. And I, re- I dedicated my life to being a, 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 a person of religious authority, uh, I, have, I have to live my life in a certain way because people are watching uh, and I'm held to a higher standard than other people. Uh, perhaps um, I, I, I should change my life as a result of this or, or what, what is going on? And yet they saw it and, they, and Jesus makes a specific note to say, even though you saw it, you decided not to change your mind. They remained, or there remained one giant, huge, big, obtuse obstacle, which is this. We are always... We are always reluctant to change our minds. And that's just a truth of life in general for us. Today, we're talking about changing our minds a little bit. We've said that um, early on, week part one was this decision piece. This second piece was like the self-deception piece. And today is this reluctancy to change our minds. Um, and this story, I think this principle highlights, and uh, we get to observe as a third, from the safe distance of a third party, where these people see something taking place and not changing their minds, and then we have to begin to apply it for us, because that's what we do here. Every single week, we get together and we say, all right, the principles of Jesus are laid out like so, what does it look like to live in this way in 2020? And changing our minds about things oftentimes takes place in this. And we're reluctant to do this. And we're especially reluctant to change our minds when a couple of things happen. One, when we've already gone public with the alternative, right? When we've already taken a stance on something else, we're incredibly reluctant to uh, now then change our minds. One of the primary rules of sales, and I'm not a, I'm not a salesman, but I, I've been around it enough or we have enough card dealers that work in this church, volunteer in this church, that I kind of hear about this, right? And friends who are in that industry or whatever. Their response to all of these, this kind of language or this kind of talk is delay a no, an outright no for as long as you can. If you feel like the answer at one point is going to be no, then use language like, hey, you don't have to make a decision right now. Just think about it. Just get in the car. Feel the leather around your butt. See how that massages? See how that feels? See how that steering wheel feels? See how that screen looks? Isn't that great? You've got like an iPad like built into your car. How, how convenient is that, right? Delay a no for as long as you can. Use language if you don't need to decide now. And then as soon as they say yes, then you got to hold them to that, right? As soon as they say yes, then hold them to it. And if they ever start getting cold feet about it, be like, hey man, I already started the paperwork. You want me to go back to my boss and change the story up? Man, that's going to make me look bad. I can't look bad. Come on, help me out here. You already said yes, right? 
We don't like to go back on something that we've already taken a public stance on, which influences us to not change our minds or make us reluctant to change our minds. All right, number two uh, is simply this. The math doesn't pencil out for us. We are always reluctant to change our minds when the math doesn't pencil out. And I, what I mean is that we, we think through things on, econo- on an economic basis. We run the math in our heads. And it's not just economic financially. A lot of times this in, includes uh, social capital and, and everything else of what kind of an image does this portray for me? What kind of, what kind of a loss am I going to experience? Is it going to be financial? Is it going to be image? Is it going to be pride? Is it going to be something else? What's the loss? What's... And when these things, when it costs me more to uh, change my mind than to stay the same, I'm more likely to stay the same in my mind. Uh, Funny how when it benefits us economically or with social capital, how quickly we are able to change our minds. It's funny how that works, isn't it? When we, when we run the math and it pencils out, we're like, hey, my mind's changed on this. I feel a real deep conviction about this. And you're like, no, it just benefits you now to do this, right? Or when somebody changes their mind, how quickly we do the math in our head on how much it would have cost them to not change their mind. <laughs> and then we become a little bit questioning about their motivation for why they changed their mind in the first place. And they say they're doing it with sincerity, but we're able to do the penciling for ourselves and be like, yeah, I mean... It makes sense for you to do this, obviously. And yes, there are times when there's an inverse relationship between economic and social capital, right? I only bring those two in because I think those are probably towards the top in terms of how we measure things. And there is a time in which uh, we can make a decision where this is going to cost us financially, especially in terms of a business. But think of the optics, right? But this is going to look really good for us. This is going to cost us, but think of how this is going to look. We've changed our minds publicly in this. We are reluctant to change, though, when the math doesn't pencil out for us in any sort of beneficial way. When we pencil things out, when we put it down on the board and we complete our pros and cons list and we look at it and we're like, the pros do not outweigh the cons. We are not going to change our mind in this way. Um, This is all, if, if we decided to do this and we decided to change our mind, this would be damaging to everything that we've built. There's no pro out of this. We are reluctant. Naturally so, right? We're survivalists at our core. We are reluctant to change our minds in that way. And then thirdly, um, we are always reluctant to change our minds when it demands something from us. We are already feeling like we live at our maximum allowable state of existence. Um, It's so funny. We've had six months of kind of like this weird sort of social calendar, lack of social calendar. Um, and yet we thought our busyness would go away and it still feels like we're busy. We always think that we're operating at maximum allowable option or allowable state of existence. And I know this to be true because nobody includes a letter to the IRS with their taxes saying, hey, I don't know who reads this, but I could do more. You know what I mean? <laughs> like I've got, room, I've got room to add on. I'm just letting you know. What do with it what you will or whatever. Or when we sign our kids up for soccer or baseball and they ask for parent involvement or you go to a PTA meeting and they're like, hey, we're going to need some parents to get involved with this. And then you look around to see who raises their hands. And when the people do, you look at them and in your mind, you don't say this out loud, but in your mind you go, sucker. <laughs> right? You look at these and be like, who has time to do this? And what they do, we did this with um, TCYSA like last year, uh, the, the soccer thing. Grayson signed up, our, our seven-year-old signed up for soccer. And in the paperwork, they say it's going to cost X amount of dollars. But here's the deal. If you're willing to volunteer 20 hours of your time, we will cut you a check at the end of the year. Um, for, for the, It's only 20 volunteer hours. You come, you put stakes in the ground, you clean up garbage, you give kids high fives. I don't even know what you do. Um, I never did any. But anyways... Uh, 
uh, you could do this and, and then you'll get, mo- you'll get paid money because we de- we're, we're trying to run this as a nonprofit. We're trying to run this as cheaply as possible. So come and m- make this happen. Um, uh, and, and at first, me, like probably many of you are like, 20 hours, what's 20 hours? Uh, uh, yeah, of course, I'll, I'll sign whatever you need me to sign. And then like halfway through the season when you've done zero, you're like, just keep my money. It's fine. I don't even know where, I, where this is at, right? Because changing my mind means oftentimes a greater level of accountability, and I'm just not sure that I'm in a position to do that right now. I already live with enough guilt. I already live with enough shame. If I was to change my mind and then you expect something more from me as a result of this, um, I don't know if I can afford to do that right now because I'm already maxed out in this way. For as much as we can see the obvious flaws in the religious leaders who are listening to Jesus tell this parable, we kind of get where they're coming from. I mean, it's easy for us sometimes to cast stones at people in Jesus' parables, be like, they're so blind, what, how obtuse, how, how dumb for them to do this. And yet when we think through how reluctant we are to change our minds based on these factors, and you think of what they were going through and what they could lose, um, the image, the public stance that they had already taken, dedicating their entire life to this, the position of authority that they would lose, like this is what they built their entire life on. And then all of a sudden, if the new king comes in and they're not really like, their job has been uh, remediated. It's gone. It's, we don't need you anymore. Thank you for your services. Um, that, like, that's a huge loss in, in that way. And then there's going to be a demand of something even more, a greater level of accountability than you've already done. Of course they didn't change their minds. Uh, I, I'd like to think that we would have, I, um, I, but I, I don't know. I mean, that's, that's a difficult spot for them. They, they'd already done all of these things. It's the same reason that Christ, true, true Christianity doesn't sell well because it's an invitation to come and die. And we've been talking through um, this series in terms of like the backdrop behind it. And I haven't like used his stuff a lot, but has been this uh, Kierkegaard, Danish philosopher's idea of, uh, of um, kind of his takes on Christianity. And, and the, one of his biggest ones is that, um, that true Christianity is rarely often followed because it costs so much. <laughs> and, and, and we sign up for like these lesser versions of it. Um, and it, it requires so much more from this. Our lives, for us, a lot of times speak of the alternative of living out our truest self. The renunciation of wealth as a security buoy and public image is more valuable than gold itself. Um, that never really pencils that in well for us. Um, if, we were to call, if we were to respond to a Christianity that required something more of us and cost all, the, all this way, um, we, it would be tough for us to do this. A lot of times we sign up for a Christianity that benefits us in some way, that helps us out socially, that gets us a community of friends, um, uh, makes us feel better about us morally, or uh, um, I don't know, these different types of, all these things that, we, that show up on the pro side of things. And yet Jesus' invitation is to come and die, to carry this cross, to bear this burden, to, to lay down your life for the sake of other people, to uh, put other people's priorities ahead of your own. And that just doesn't pencil in well for us, right? And we think to ourselves, why live under the divine accountability when we can chase after our own personal accountability? I mean, we use language like this. I owe it to myself to be the best version of me I can be. And any denial of what I want or what I desire for myself is just this regressive religious guilt held over from potentially my religious upbringing of my parents or this religion that I just can't kick, and so there's no, it's no wonder that we oftentimes find it hard to change our minds or say yes to a Christianity that's safe and easy. And we're presented with a Christianity that requires us to bid to come and die. We go, mm, 
I like my best life now. Um, I like John 10, 10. Like I've come to give life and life to the fullest. Can we get that on a big sign somewhere? Um, all of these things about living life with patience and kindness and gentleness in spite of people who probably are going to hate you. Like, ugh. The world's going to hate you because it hated me first. When Jesus says those language, we don't like to be hated. (laughs) Nobody likes to be hated. Um, We don't like to live our our lives in a way of living on less so that everybody can have a little bit more, right? So that it's a little bit more balanced uh, in that way. Uh, That's not the American dream. It's not the American way. So a lot of times this call to Christianity is is difficult. Um, It doesn't make a lot of sense. It's not easy. And so... um, we are given this opportunity once in a while, like these, these, these people hearing Jesus to, to do something differently. And we have this decision to make. Life is about these decisions. It's about either this or not, either love or hate, or um, either a divine accountability to a, a God in heaven who created and, and loves me and knows what's best for me, or divine accountability to myself. And I just, I do what feels right for me. And I just, and that's the most important thing moving forward. Life is an either or. Final quote from Kierkegaard as we kind of close up for today and close up this series as a whole. Life is an either or. Not just between good and evil, but between choosing and not choosing. This is his big thing, right? To not choose is to choose. When you're coming up on the exit of a highway, you either choose to get off or you choose to stay on. To not choose to get off the exit is to choose to stay on the highway. When you're confronted with this idea of you can live for yourself, you can bid to come and die, or you can do something else, to not choose that path of true Christianity is to choose, is to choose that myself, that my, what I want for myself is what's most important. And if I can figure out how to piece Jesus in where it benefits me, then, then, then I'm good with that. But beyond that, I don't know. And so he's trying to say this is an either or decision. Either you're in or you're out. Um, it's not just good or evil. It's actually choosing and not choosing. The person who lives in the ethical sphere lives intentionally, intensively. Decision. Decision is the eternal protest against fictions. To make a decision, that right there is the eternal protest against fictions. About a fictional story about myself that says all of the things to me about what I deserve and what I'm about and what, you know, how do I advance myself and what's good for me. So we, uh, and, and, and whether it's we've been a Christian for a long time or identified as a Christian for a long time, whether church has been a thing for us or not, or whether we're watching this as kind of like a skeptic so kicking the tires and checking things out and, and uh, we have a respect for Jesus, but we're just not sure where this is at. Um, it, it would be simple to say, or Kierkegaard would say, then here's the thing. You always have to live life based on this um, decision. And you might have to change your mind about how, uh, what's most important to you and change your mind is going to be ridiculously hard. And what you're changing your mind to is this new way of living that is a bid to come and die. Um, and the math will never pencil out for you and you will have lived your life representing something, the alternative, right? Um, and the only time that we change our mind is when we consciously make a decision. This is what is most important regardless of the cost, this is what's right for me to do. I need to do this. By the way, we're doing this as a nation through a lot of the social unrest, and we have a lot of decisions to make in in changing our mind on how things operate. And at some point, it comes down to, as we have a history of 
good for us at some points going, you know what, regardless of the cost, this is just the right thing for me to do. Uh, and, and then sometimes we get it wrong too, obviously. Uh, and so it's going to come down to not, oh, we did it because the economics make sense or we, we make this decision because um, it's going to look good for us. The optics are going to be great or we're going to do this because of this. We, we make this decision, this faith decision that we make. Based on what true Christianity is, the math will never pencil out. It will never make sense to you. The, 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 uh, the default, if you just allow it to go um, just by yourself and, and the way that you just kind of do life w- without making this decision is going to be to stay on the freeway and not te- take the exit. But to not make a decision is to make a decision. So you and I every day have this decision to make on how we're going to live this thing out. And decision is the eternal protest against the fictions of our life that tell us things are fine, you're good, don't worry, just be a good person, that's enough. What's in, the truth that's inside of you is enough. And we cannot afford to be like, eh, well, I'll figure it out later. I can't, I'll, you know, whatever. Because to not make a decision is to make a decision. May we walk in the way of righteousness. May we change our minds to align ourselves with the way of his kingdom. And may every decision we make along these lines be an eternal protest against the fictions that are all too convincing that we got this, that we're enough, and that the truth is within us.